Well, good morning again, Chapel Hill. It is good to welcome you to worship. A couple of years ago, uh, when our uh, friend Dean Weaver took over as the leader of our denomination, what we call Stated Clerk, which is just the worst name ever, but that's what they call it, the Stated Clerk, one of his first actions was to do everything he could to hire the guy who's going to be preaching for us this morning. He reached out to me and said, we don't have this budgeted for the first year, but I really want to bring Michael Davis on because I think he would make a huge difference in our denomination. And so, through your Beyond These Walls giving, we were able to provide some support for a one-off to allow Michael to come on the staff. It didn't take long, however, for him uh, to be recognized in his competence. He has been recently promoted to be the second in command, the assistant stated clerk of our denomination in that capacity. He is responsible for championing our gospel um, uh, priorities, the gospel priorities as we are calling them, the work that we are trying to do to strengthen and support the work of the entire denomination of the EPC. He's doing a great job in that respect. He was here this week at Presbytery talking a little a bit about that, in fact talking a lot about that, weren't you brother? And we said, well while you're here in the Northwest, would you come and bring the word to us this morning? I love this guy, he is a friend and becoming a greater and greater friend as we get to know each other better. I would think he would tell you that his most important ministry is to his beloved wife Serena and his three boys, MJ, Elijah, and Titus. The Lord has brought Michael Davis to us this morning to bring God's word. Would you give him a warm, sweetheart church welcome? I was glad when they said unto me, let me go to Chapel Hill in Gig Harbor, Washington, in fellowship with the people of God. That's what the Bible said, isn't it? Okay, it didn't say that. All right, that's what I said. Uh, I am thankful for your pastor and his team and how they have shown me so much uh, love and hospitality. And uh, I'm grateful to open the Word of God before you this morning. As we do, uh, I want to let you know that the, the idea of our passage, before we get into it, is that we understand, as Luke is writing to his original uh, readers, that this is this idea of assurance of faith, a certainty. Uh, certainty because of uh, what they believed in was caused so much challenge, and it was challenge amongst a community. Why? Because there was somebody that was teaching something absolutely new, doing signs and wonders that they had never seen before. And so let's go before the Word, um, read the Word of God before we pray and get into the text. Starting in Luke 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the, um, all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent to me to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and recovering of sight to the blind, to set a liberty, at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled the scroll up, uh, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And his eye, in the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he had begun to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words and, were, and that words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this, is, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there, will, there were many widows in, the, in Israel in the day of Eli, days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath and in the land of Sidon to the woman who was a widow. And there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And none of them uh, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to, borrow, to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so they might, so they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word, and I pray that I hide beneath your cross and be under your word, and that your people hear you. Allow it, Lord Jesus, to meet them where they are. Allow it, Lord God, to help them to see who you are more clearly. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Our rock and our redeemer. All God's people say together. So when you think about what we see that's most prevalent in our society on the news, oftentimes it's this narrative of hopelessness. Uh, there are wars that we see. There are people in which we have constantly seen impoverished and held captive. Uh, we look at our own society and we are befuddled as to why inflation and the economy is the way it is. And we also are seriously having so many issues within our own government that it's causing infighting amongst Christians, the church. Uh, so the things that are outside of this, of our churches are actually affecting what's happening here. And we think when well, every time we open our newspaper or turn on the television and we watch our local news or the national news, uh, nobody is trying to give us a picture of hope. They're only reporting a lot of times of, as to what they see. But would it, would it be interesting if you turned on your local news or the national news or even opened your newspaper and you seen on there, I have good news. 
And you would be, oh my goodness, what is that good news? Is, is the stock market back? Can I get some of my money back? Or, or it, it, do, are, is there, are there no more children, innocent children being sex trafficked or trafficked throughout the world? What, can, what is the good news? I think that when we see Jesus arrive on the scene in Nazareth in his hometown, they all knew what was going on. The news was spreading about him. The works that he was doing, the miracles that he was doing, the preaching that he was doing, everybody knew. So was there some sense of, of hope. But then there was also some sense of skepticism. And beloved, I want you to hear, if anything, you don't take anything else away from this sermon this morning, is that our Lord is the fulfillment of not some things, but all things. Not some things, not a few things, not two things, but all things. So that we may be agents of hope. Yes, he was rejected. Yes, we will live some through that same lens, but yet we will be hopeful people. Hope filled people carrying that out throughout our world. That's really important. Why? Because many of us, if we were to tell the truth, we're the individuals oftentimes when we look at the narrative who is challenging Jesus, ready to crucify him because we're skeptical, not really believing in what he is trying to do in our lives, but yet trying to make sure that we control every aspect of it. And that's where our hope is a lot of times, in our control, and what we can see that we can do in our own right, being our own Messiah. I hope you're tracking with me this morning because I think that when we understand that God is the fulfillment of all things, sometimes when we are dealing with some of the most difficult circumstances and when we're dealing with some of the most hopeful situations, hopeless situations, where we cannot see a way out, we can look to the scriptures. We can look to the church. We can look to God and say, I know that there's hope at the end of the story. And so when we find ourselves in our text, just a brief introduction as to where Jesus comes in, we see ourselves seeing Jesus come in as a reader. See, immediately, he, the, Luke let us know that he's in his hometown. He walks up to the attendant, and they obviously there, there was some way in which Jesus, probably when he was a boy, was already reading the scriptures in Hebrew to, uh, to everyone in the synagogue. And so they knew that he was capable of unrolling the scrolls and reading in front of everybody and then teaching. And it was normal, it was customary for them to not only read, but on that Saturday at the synagogue, but also sit down and begin to explain what they had read. And so this is exactly what Jesus has, has done. And so when we see ourselves in the synagogue, when we see Jesus in this position, in this narrative, in this scene, what we understand then is that the synagogue really meant something. The scholars who said the synagogue served important communal functions in the civic life of Jewish people. Uh, the, the, the state of the synagogue was pivotal, a pivotal institution in the Jewish life that played a major role in enabling communities throughout the world to express its Jewishness, to preserve their challenges created by the temple's destruction uh, in 70 AD. And so it brought this cohesion, it brought this identity that eventually caused them to ne negotiate that trauma in 70 AD. Now, why is that important? Because it puts in perspective, contextually, why Jesus is doing what he is doing. 
Because sometimes we can think of the synagogue like a church. It was a place where they worshiped, but it was also things that they handled with civic life. Right? It would be strange for civic aspects of life, politi- politically or whatnot, for us, because of where we are in, our, in the United States, to invite uh, politicians and such into our churches. But what we do want to do is actually be the front door to our society where they feel as if they can come here and find hope, find healing, find transformation. So although we may not be pushing a way of life this Jewishness, what we are doing is trying to situate a, 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 a way in which a worldview can be adopted that is looking towards the good news, is looking towards liberation, is looking towards hope. Again, Jesus is the fulfillment of all things, so that we may live as agents of hope. When you look at verse 14 through 16, I want you to understand that we're supposed to do this by being truth tellers. And then in 20 through 27, we're supposed to be able to be people who have robust faith. And then when we look at uh, the last part, 28 through 30, uh, I want you to see that a lot of times we actually heard our testimony by the infighting, the persecution within the church. When we look at being a truth teller, you may ask yourself, Mike, what does that mean? What, what is a truth teller? Uh, one of my, uh, I think, uh, modern day heroes of the day is named Brian Stevenson. He wrote a book called Just Mercy. And when you think about when he talks about truth telling, he was talking about telling a narrative as to what has actually happened to people that was in prison. He's a lawyer and he has uh, a firm which actually helps people who have been unjustly put on death row. Uh, it's really powerful because sometimes people that have been placed on just death row have basically been forgotten, pushed into the cell, and lost throughout the system, and nobody is there to advocate for them. That's the gospel right there, if you, if you, if you hear it, beloved. We, we, too, were lost. We, too, were pushed aside, and the gospel says that we have an advocate that laid his life down to fight on our behalf. But it doesn't stop right there. It was one time Brian Stevenson actually was giving his speech, and when, when he was giving the speech, one man who was in a wheelchair wounded in the back, he said, do you know what you're doing? He yells from the back, and Brian Stevenson is saying, I, I, don't, I can't hear you. I, what are you saying? He says, do you know what you're doing? And he, he said it again. He said, do you know what you're doing? And he said, sir, what, what am I doing? You're beating the drum for justice. And, and, and he went on ahead, he grabbed Brian into his wheelchair, grabbed him by his collar. He said, do you see this wound on my head? And he said, yes, sir, I see this wound. He said, I got this wound in 1963 and in Montgomery, Alabama, when I was fighting for justice. And he goes on and he shows other wounds and he lists those wounds out. And each one that he lists out, he was saying how he was fighting for something. And he wanted to encourage Brian. Because Brian's was saying that truth-telling is to actually recognize what is going on in society or in, in issues, in situations that you can actually tell truth that will liberate people. That's what he was doing. So when you walk into the prison system and someone says, why would you meet with this gentleman? He would tell them because he was unjustly put on death row. It wasn't always about exonerating the prisoner. It was just making sure that they got justice. Freedom. 
for us, a lot of times looks like as if we are released from the bondage and the shackles. And what I believe the Bible teaches us is that, that we are ongoing in our sanctification as to what it means for us to be free. Therefore, truth-telling is not for us to think that merely when we communicate the truth, proclamation of the word, that we are primarily free from absolutely everything. There are struggles and, bound, and, and hills and et cetera that we will climb. Rejection like Jesus that we will face. However, what, is, what we know is we know the truth. We know the end of the story. We need to proclaim it. Because sometimes which, what we may think that we can do as truth tellers is will ourselves, self-will ourselves and try to control whatever narrative we like. Instead of recognizing our deepest need, our deepest need is for the gospel. It's for the liberation from absolutely everything by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we need. And when you think about it, sometimes we have to say to ourselves, do we proclaim that very thing? Are we truth tellers of what we believe? See, this weekend, I had a couple cousins that live here um, in this wonderful, great state of Washington, and they took me to Wings on Washington. Now, I did not know it was a semi-roller coaster, okay? So I was a bit squeamish afterwards. Um, we get in, and I'm thinking I'm about to watch a show, and this thing begins to move. And I wouldn't say that I'm the most, like, courageous roller coaster guy. That's not me, okay? So I'm just, I'm trying to keep my... I'm trying to keep my, my confidence and, and, my, and my manhood tucked in. So I, when, when I'm on the thing, I'm, whoa, yes. You know, it, it was, it's moved me around. However, through that, I was able to see why you love living in Washington. I was able to understand what you love about this great state. What I've seen that many of you who are proclaimers of it, which I believe we're all proclaimers of what we're most devoted to. What we proclaim is all of the hiking and, and, the, wa and the water sports and paddle boating and, and fishing and uh, going, going, going to the waterfall that I've seen and all of the beautiful greenery up in Bellingham, Washington and every aspect of what you can see, the Mariners, the 12th man at Seattle. Uh, congratulations to the Mariners, by the way, making it to the playoffs. <laughs> Y'all better get some amens throughout this sermon day. Okay, y'all just amen to the mariners. But, 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 uh, but, but I seen what you enjoy and love about this. And so you proclaim it. And in fact, sometimes you, people may not even come to church when it's beautiful days like this because you love it so much. And, and, and you know what? It's all right to proclaim what you enjoy. But beloved, can I tell you as a truth teller, it is very important to make sure that we, procla we proclaim the hope that changes the lives and the trajectory of people and nations. <laughs> that is how powerful the gospel is. It changes lives and nations. It recreates, it restores all of things in the world. Our Lord is the fulfillment of all things. We ought to proclaim that hope by being truth tellers. And that is why when you listen to stories like Brian Stevenson's where he's walking into prison systems and he is freeing or if getting right justice for those who've been put, placed on death row, that is powerful. Because we too, beloved, should have been sentenced to death. 
We needed Jesus to walk into that synagogue and read Isaiah 61 and and 58 verse 6 to say, as captives you are liberated. You are no longer held in bondage to sin. Jesus, I have come to fulfill all things. And he has been that sign. He's, amen, he's been that sign to them. And you know, a funny story, I like to make myself look as if I don't have any sense. And so one time when we were jet skiing, mind you, I'd never done any water sports and this was the first time and I got a buddy who loves to live on the edge. And so sometimes I don't like to back down to a challenge and that's just me, I know my pride and all of that. So I jump on the jet ski with my wife and my six-year-old son at the time and uh, we, three of us on a jet ski, which we have never written before, okay? And uh, kind of ter- terrified, and I'm watching them as we get through the wake. They're out there spinning around and bouncing around, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to God's unchanging hand. I'm praying, Lord, help us. Zzz, uh, 20 miles an hour. This is going a little too fast. And then my son will be crying if I went a little faster, and he was, because he didn't want to get on. So I was just like, all right, as long as, if we just don't fall off, this would be a fantastic time, right? You know, and so my, my buddy taking a picture of us, and we're smiling. I see what to me looks like a ship coming towards our way, and as it's coming, the way, it's pushing waves, and so I turn my ski just a little too hard, and we just start tipping on over. It was just slow motion, and I was just like, this is where we die. This is where I just take my whole family. We all, we all going to see you, Jesus. And so we, we fall into the water. I'm holding my son and the waves are coming over my head. And I'm just like, help, I'm going under help. And, and like, you know, from my perspective, point of view of my friends, they were like, man, we just, we thought it was over with. And I'm floating away. And my wife says, Mike, you got a life jacket on. So does MJ, let him go. I was like, baby, I'm scared. <laughs> she was the superhero today. But the picture of that, what I want you to understand is God's word is so sufficient that sometimes we don't recognize it's the very thing that allows us to make it through life. Being rooted and grounded in the proclamation of the very thing that we tell the truth of is the device that helps us float through times in which we find ourselves in the middle of the ocean, not able to swim against the currents. We'd like to be strong enough to swim against them, but however, the reality is we have limitations, but we do know a God who does not have any limitations. Therefore, he is able to help us navigate throughout society, telling the hope in which we know every time we see it. And our text helps us to see that this is what it means to be a truth teller. This, and this is, why meant, this is what it meant for Jesus to talk to them. Now, contextually, you might say, Mike, what does that mean for the original readers? I'm glad that you asked. What it meant was when they were sitting there under the, the auspice of the, in, in the authority of the Roman government, what it meant was they had to give up men to fight in the war. They, so they lost economic power because there was not much work that could be done around the agriculture to develop and grow the community as much as they needed. They didn't have as much economic power. They didn't have as much military power because they felt so weak and frail. And so when Jesus is coming and preaching liberation for them, they think this is the hope that we need. We need the hope of the Messiah to come to free us from these things. Thank you. If it's really you, if it's really you, do a sign. 
And that's where, that's what, that's what, that's what he's leading to in the next couple of verses. Verses 20 to 27, their faith wasn't robust. Every other place that he went, when they're asking him, do what you did in Capernaum as you did in your hometown, it was the fact that they had faith. We can read through scriptures where Jesus says, because of your lack of faith, what? These things couldn't be fulfilled. <laughs> it wasn't that Jesus didn't have the power. It's the fact that why, why, why would he waste himself being around people who are, he is, they're having him prove himself as the Messiah. They ought to believe. And so what does it mean to have a robust faith? To have a robust faith is very important for us to understand, uh, once again, this deep sense of understanding our need for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's to learn from our neighbors and those that are particularly disenfranchised because it's abundantly clear that they can live in a society where they don't have as many resources that we have, but yet still some of them can proclaim his hope. There are things that we can learn, not just from those that have means, but those without means. That's important. Why is it important? It is because when we think about what it means to have a robust faith, what it helps us to understand that this life, this journey, is not solely upon how much we will ourselves to believe. How much we mask ourselves and our needs with what we can cover up. How we can convince ourselves of faith, but it's in who we trust. See, a lot of times I have to convince my kids to trust me. But, the, but the, and it's interesting because sometimes they naturally trust me and sometimes they don't trust me. And, and, and I can understand why they don't trust me because daddy can be crazy sometimes. But I'd love for their faith to be in me so that they can find comfort. Now that's one aspect. For us, I think the imagery there where I want you to see is that God wants us to trust in him no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance. Once again, what does this have to do with the text? I want you to think of when he says, today, this scripture, it has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what's interesting in verse 22, it says all of them, they, they, they spoke well of him. And, and, and they marveled at his graciousness from every word that came out of his mouth. But then some of them were skeptical because they asked the question, isn't this Joseph's son? speaking this way and so Jesus began to extrapolate a little bit more expound and explain a little bit more by using two examples of Elijah and Elijah and when he uses these examples he uses the example of a woman a widow woman and then he uses another example of the leopards and using both of them both prophets when you read the narrative trusted in the word of the Lord fundamentally what was important is God said go and trust and even God made provisions with the leopards by making it sound as if there's a military army coming that scared off those people. And so they were able to take from their camp. When Elijah was working with the widow woman, he, he actually commanded her and told her, hey, this is what the word of the Lord said. He'll provide the food and the resources for you, but can you feed me first, take care of me first, and everything else will be provided. And she was like, wait a minute, my son will die, he's sick. Once he does die, even though that God did provide more resources, he dies. She gives them to Elijah. Elijah falls over him three times, crying out to God, and God brings him back to life. Why does Jesus use these narratives to convince the people of their faith? It is because God, it is to show that God has always been at work. God has always been doing the work in liberating his people, freeing them, and always caring and providing for them. 
So your faith need not waver depending upon what you perceive, perceive your circumstance to be. Your faith ought to be robust and strong in the fact that God will say, will do what he said and promised that he will do. So my question for you is, do you understand your deepest need? Do you, have you assessed where sometimes I just don't trust God? I don't trust him with my children. Uh, I don't trust him with my resources. So I'm a little standoffish to the church at times. I don't trust him with some of the spiritual leaders that he placed in my life. So I have to silo myself. It's just hard to have faith in him today in a society where we're deconstructing a lot. This, I don't know. And what God is saying is, I want to free you from the I don't knows. Because I do know. I'm the fulfillment of all things. That should be so assuring. And that's what Luke wants for his readers. To be assured that the fact that the faith that they have is the very thing that they can lean on. Beloved, there's nothing else that can do that for you. I don't care how how much you put your time, your resources, and energy into all of your recreational things, into all of your, uh, your career and professional life and your development. I, I, I'm here to tell you this morning, if you don't put it in Jesus, if you don't hold on to him, you'll have a difficult time. The last point that I have, verses 28 through 30, the imagery there, if them being filled with wrath and driving Jesus to the cliff to try to kill him. What happens is, is the picture you should have is that this is actually a foreshadow of the crucifixion. That Jesus doing the same thing, proclaiming his truth. Remember when he met with Pontius Pilate and he said, what is truth? Remember when, he, you know, he, he's, Pontius, he's telling Pontius Pilate, he's not really answering his questions. And then everybody's like, crucify him. And he's just, I'm going to give him over. Jesus doesn't fight for himself at all. This is a foreshadow of that. Because when Jesus hides away and sinks out, we see this in all the other the gospels where Jesus gets away from the crowd. But we know the end of the story. We know what he had to do. But what does it mean for the church? A lot of times, beloved, when we're looking at persecution, we think persecution is always coming outside of the church. So when we read our media, when we read our news, they're coming for us. I want to say, if we're not unified as a church, as a body of believers, living out the great commandment where it says, love one another and everybody will know you're my disciples, people won't know that we're the church. So we can't persecute one another. And I think that's sometimes what we overlook. When we look at this text, it's the church that's actually persecuting Jesus. The people that's supposed to be receiving him. How many times have we been hurt by the church? All of us have our testimonies. Church hurt is not fun. But then how many other things divide us in society amongst the big C church? And we name call and we point fingers. See, Karen Ellis 
She said, as she's worked with so many different missionaries in an article, are American Christians really persecuted? She mentions that persecution is easier to understand when it's, physical, when it's a physical torture, when it's physical torture, death, uh, imprisonment. In American persecution, is like an advanced stage of cancer. It just eats away at you. And you cannot feel it, you can't see it at all. This is the worst kind of persecution. So I wonder when Jesus was opening up the scroll and when he was reading, if he was saying, you're free from one another. You're free from the oppression that you have caused to each other. Not just the system of government, not just sin, but the things that cause so many barriers. You're no longer captive to that. What if Jesus is getting to that? Perhaps he may be trying to show the church that the hope of the gospel is the way that we display a love in which you first felt when you came into relationship with me. So to, to the big vision that you guys have overall, being missional and inv- inviting, that happens when people see that you love one another. And when our loving cares for those that are most afflicted, those that are pushed to the margins, those that we feel like have no hope. It was Greg Reporter, I like jazz, who had a, um, a song called Take Me to the Alley. Me and my wife have listened to Greg Reporter, who I think he's one of the greatest jazz vocalists of our day, several times in live concert. And one time he shared a story about his mother who was a Methodist preacher. He's from Baker, California. I hope I got that right, Baker, California. And what he shared was, he said, around Thanksgiving, which if you don't know anything about me, you learn I love Thanksgiving. Uh, I really enjoy eating. (laughs) He talked about how the macaroni and cheese, which was baked, was laid out on the table. How his mother put the spread of the greens out. She put, the, she put the dressing on the table and she laid the gravy out and the cranberry sauce for, to spread right on there. And then she put the turkey and the ham and all of the sides. And then the desserts, the German chocolate cake and the sweet potato pie and you name whatever dessert. She laid it all out for eight of her children. And she says, baby, let's get around the table and pray. And he said, mama would pray this long prayer and they would all go around and pray their mouths salivating, waiting to dive in to this meal. But then she would say, wrap it up. They were befuddled. Why would we be wrapping the food up? We're not going to anybody else's house. She says, we're going to take it to the alley. We're going to take it to the ones that are forgotten, the ones that are afflicted. And so when he sings that song, Take Me to the Alley, that's what he's talking about. Beloved, when we go out, we don't give people our leftovers as agents of hope. We give them our first fruits. And the beautiful thing about that is, is that we show and demonstrate that their needs come before our needs. So can you get the imagery of them eating after those that they've already served that are in the alleys of California that are homeless, sick, and afflicted? Sometimes we don't want to be around that. But the imagery I want you to see is that we can mask 
all of our afflictions, with our resources, with our put togetherness, with our image management. And what Jesus comes into the synagogue and does and says, you don't have to do that anymore. You can proclaim how the word has changed you. Be a truth teller of that. You can have faith in the fact that God is going to always be with you and provide for you. And then you can love people and not persecute them because of what you are believing outside of my word. If you hold on to that and give people their first, they will see that I am a loving God, a transforming God that loves my church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you for all that you have done and continue to do. And I pray, Lord, that we see that this is your church and your people and everything that we have is yours. You're the fulfillment of all things. Continue to make us new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people say. Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.